When references are made to a place that we have never been before, our brains automatically post an image of that place on the bulletin board of our imagination. You know this process. Maybe somebody is preparing to send you on a business trip or you're anticipating a family vacation. Maybe you're following directions to a job site or you're going to someone's home, but a place that you've never been before. It's really virtually impossible not to gain some image of that place in your mind. Let me just use by way of illustration, let's say Camp Clearwaters. For those of you that aren't aware of that place, it's a camp that we go a couple times a year. We have been for some years and in retreat as a church. Now, remember the first time you heard of Camp Clearwaters? There was a first time for all of us, and there's not a lot of pictures of promotion of that place, which is why I choose it. Uh, But... This camp, you heard Camp Clearwaters, and there was some description of it, and somehow you got a picture in your mind of what this camp looked like. Were you accurate? When you finally got there, was it what you thought it would be? I think we'd all say, no, I'm probably not even close. We heard words about it, ideas about it, but it didn't look anything like what we had in our mind. You have to see the real thing in order to get the right picture posted in your mind. And I might say that even for those of you who have never been to Camp Clearwaters, I could give 15 minutes of description of the camp and every last one of you would have a different picture in your mind if you have never seen it before. And even those who maybe it's been a year or if it becomes two years or if you don't go to Camp Clearwaters for 10 years, what's going to happen to that picture, even the real picture that you have having been there, that's going to fade as well, isn't it? Only a visit to the real place would set the image straight. And if someone who has visited the camp doesn't return for a few years, even their image will be remade somewhat. That's probably happened to you as you visited a place maybe from your childhood and you remembered it a little bit differently than it really was. That door wasn't quite where you thought it was. That yard was a little smaller than you thought it was. And there's a building over here that you never thought of before, right? We have to go to the real place to get the real picture. And I think this is analogous to what I'm seeking to do here as I lead you through this topic on love. That is to visit the real site so that the fresh images are kept up and the accurate ones are taken in the place of those that are not accurate. Last week we talked about the idea that God is love. What does it mean that God is love? What image is posted on the bulletin board of your mind when you hear that phrase, God is love? For those that do not know Christ as personal Savior, there are many theologies that develop from that phrase that are inaccurate. There are those that say God is love. That means that God has never sent His Son to die in the place of sinners to appease His wrath because God has no wrath towards sinners God is not an angry God. He's a God of love. He would never send Jesus to die for sin. There are theologians who say that. Thinking down those same lines, they strip God of any sense of anger or judgment. There is no hell, as a matter of fact, because God is love, say some theologians. They take the concept of love and they post an image in their mind as to what that means, and often it is very inaccurate. This happens politically, too, as we mentioned last week. Under the banner of God's love, there are those who would say there should be no capital punishment. And you'll see a sign that's walking out in front of those who are protesting someone's execution. God is love. 
It says something to them. There might be those who use that phrase, God is love, to accept all forms of deviant behavior. Since God is love, He accepts all people just as they are to do whatever they want to do because God is love is the argument. But such views of God's love evidence that these adherents have never visited the real place. They have not defined love in the realistic light of biblical revelation. The true picture that we should have in our head as we've described it last week is what? 1 John 3.16, this is love. That God gave His Son to die as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is love, John says. The one who declares in the most stark and bold terms, the Apostle John, who says God is love, also goes on record to say we must understand that phrase that God is love in light of this. Love is defined in God sending His Son to die as an atoning sacrifice for sin. It is a false image to sever, then, our conception of God's love from His severity and wrath and holiness and judgment, for instance. When people do this, it is as if they hear about a place post an image in their mind, and then go on record and write books and establish theological institutions to say, we will defend this image, though they've never been there. The only person that can really begin to understand what real love is is the person who has come to the foot of the cross and has seen the Son, Jesus Christ, dying to pay the Father's wrath and to provide the forgiveness of sin. What is the real picture? That is it. The ultimate image is God's Son, Jesus Christ, bloodied and beaten, hanging on a Roman cross and paying for the sins of mankind. That is love, says John. God's love is best seen with His wrath draped over the corpse of His beloved, sinless, holy Son, whom He loved with an eternal and pure love. Divine love is God's native orientation then to abundantly give himself as the greatest good to others apart from what they deserve. This is not a love then that is severed from his severity and his wrath and his judgment and his purity. This is a love that comes to full terms with these aspects of God's character. This scene, if we are to truly visit it, is a scene that must radically change us. We established last week, as we discussed last week, the divine love. We now say that in light of this divine love, we must be changed. Having viewed that love in the light of divine revelation, now what? And so we take up this morning the theme of human love. We look at it, first of all, along the lines of the ethic of human love. By ethic, I speak of moral oughtness. We cannot contemplate God's love and simply walk away. Let's take a person, for instance, that has heard of the Grand Canyon, but has never been there. This person goes to the Grand Canyon, this great scene, and stands on the edge, looks at the Grand Canyon, kind of just says, hmm, spins on his heel and walks away and changes the subject. Something's wrong. This guy either needs to get some new glasses or needs to get some joy in his heart or something. You, got, you can't just look at the Grand Canyon and just walk away in apathy. 
Well, I'd like you to multiply that. Matter of fact, let me add to this illustration on the fly here a little bit. But let's say that you put somebody in the car because you're so excited about the Grand Canyon. You took this guy down there to see this and you drive all the way down there and he stands on the edge of the canyon. That's all he can do. Huh. And walk away. He doesn't really care at all about it. You'd be a little upset, I think. Well, multiply that a million times over. If you stand at the foot of the cross and all you can say is, huh, and turn around and walk away. We would really question somebody that could stand and see the Grand Canyon and be completely unimpressed. And a million times more if someone could stand at the foot of the cross of Christ and be unimpressed. That scene must change us. This perfect love between father and son, enjoyed through eternity past, now that father taking his son and sacrificing him in the sinner's place. Walk away from that scene unchanged and there is something desperately wrong with you. As creatures made in God's image, as creatures made for his glory, every attribute of God creates a responsibility for the creature to respond to it. Now the form of our response tracks down one of two lines. We notice here, under this ethic of love, we respond to God's attributes in one of two ways. First of all, there are God's incommunicable attributes. That's a word you've got to practice a few times. But incommunicable, I think makes sense, is that it's not communicated to us in the sense that we cannot do what God does in some ways. Incommunicable attributes belong only to Him. What are they? Let's fill them in. God is all-powerful. God is all-wise. God is eternal. These types of attributes are not things that we can emulate. When we imitate the incommunicable attributes of God, our imitation is not flattery. Our imitation is blasphemy. What did Satan say? I will be like the Most High. He seeks to grasp what is God's alone and tries to take it for himself, the lordship, the kingship of God. I will be like the Most High. This is what Eve does when she weighs the wisdom of disobeying the perfect wisdom of God. She takes the place of God in that moment and seeks to exercise an attribute that is God's alone, perfect and absolute wisdom. The only proper response to God's incommunicable attributes is to fall down in humility before him and to worship in awe. He knows all. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. He is unchangeable. We fall down in awe before him. But there's a second line, and that is God's communicable attributes. By contrast, imitation of God's communicable attributes is an ethical responsibility. We cannot approximate the depth of God's kindness and holiness and grace, certainly. But as creatures made in his likeness, as redeemed representatives of his glories on this earth, we must be kind and holy and filled with grace. Be holy, God says. Why? Because I am holy. Enough explanation. You are made in my image. We could fill in the blanks. You are made in my image, he says. You are my creation, my child. I, as your creator and heavenly father, am holy, so you be holy. We understand this, don't we? Just within common life. Let's take, for instance, a family situation. I'll take my family. Incommunicable. Let's think of it in these words. If I came home one day to find one of my sons exercising authority over his mother, which is an attempt that's common, but if I saw that happening, I would put an end to it immediately. 
She is his authority, and I am the head of my home. He is out of place to exercise the authority that only I legitimately would have over his mother. Communicable. If I came home and heard that same son speaking unkindly to his mother, I might say something like this. We do not talk like that around here. You do not hear me talk to your mother that way, and you're not going to talk to her that way. Right? Communicable. You are to do what I do. In one place, you are not to do what I do as father. In the other place, you are to do what I do as father. When it comes to love, our heavenly father says what? He says, this is what I am. Follow me. Follow me. Love is a communicable attribute of God. And so Ephesians chapter 5, if you'll make your way there, we find this clear command concerning love and concerning our emulation of it. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Now, obviously, we're not to imitate God in every way. We're not to try to be eternal or act as if we are immutable. In fact, we should change. But we are to be imitators of God's communicable attributes as dearly loved children. Notice verse 2. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Imitate your heavenly Father. How? Live a life of love. The Greek phrase literally, walk in love. What does that mean? What does that look like, Paul? What pops into Paul's mind when he says, imitate your heavenly Father? What is it that pops into his mind? Verse 2, Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There again is the cross. There again he calls God's people to come back to the cross and to do what is there. To lay down our lives as a sacrifice for others. Imitate God. That means live a life of love. That means live sacrificially as Jesus laid down his life. 1 John 4.11 puts it this way. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. There's an oughtness to all of this. To come to terms with the love of God brings a moral responsibility to our plate. But how can we do this? How can we find it in ourselves to love as Christ loved? Well, we cannot, obviously. Not in our own strength. Not this kind of love, but this is where grace enters the equation. And we see the source of human love. It should causes some real challenge in our heart to think of the love of God and to think of the epitome of that love, Christ hanging on the cross, and then to hear God say, you do what I'm doing. You love as I have loved. That's a tremendous challenge. There's great hope here, though, as we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Unaided in our own strength, such love surpasses us. But Deuteronomy 30, we have the Israelites on the east side of Jordan poised to enter the promised land. Moses summons the nation for these last words of instruction, and he tells them that, listen, if you disobey God, you'll be scattered among the nations. But if among those nations you repent, you will be brought back to this land. And if you repent and you are brought back to this land, then I have this encouraging word for you. 
verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God will circumcise your hearts. He will prepare your hearts so that you have the capacity to love him. This is a work of God that is generating a response of love. John chapter 17, in the prayer of Jesus, shortly before his arrest and murder, Jesus pours out his heart to the Father, and he prays in behalf of his disciples. And what he says of them can be said of us generally throughout this prayer. John chapter 17 and verse 24, Father Jesus prays, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So clearly here Jesus is praying for his followers and he wants them to see his glory. They've seen his glory, right? John said, we've seen his glory, full of grace and truth. But Jesus prays in a different way. I want them to see my full glory. The great light that flows from his glorified presence in eternity. I want them to join me in heaven. Jesus prays. Praying for his disciples. He prays for us. And says then, verse 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. Who's the they? I think the they there are the disciples. They know that you sent. The world rejects me, but these people know me. My followers know me. Notice verse 26, the implication. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Those are words I don't know that I can even begin to describe. The significance of that. Father, you know the perfect, absolute, complete, eternal love that we shared with one another through all of eternity. I pray that you'll put that love in them. That you will bring them into our circle. And that we together will share this love. He draws his followers into the love of the Godhead. How does he do that? Verse 26. Notice it again at the beginning of verse 26. How does Jesus propose to do this? I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that this love would be given to them. It is through making the Father known that Jesus opens our eyes to see God, and when we see God, we enter into his love. So we have here a holy conspiracy. The Son conspiring with the Father to put the love they have shared through eternity in the disciples. As Peter would put it, that we would participate in the divine nature. If you get a hold of the concept of genuine divine love, you've gotten a hold of the divine nature and you have entered into that divine nature as that love flows through your own life and your own experience as a believer. Did God answer Jesus' prayer? I've assumed it here, but let's prove it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. In the context of trials and suffering and difficulty, Paul says, verse 5 of Romans 5, And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he has given us. So Jesus prays that the Spirit would come. Upon his departure, the Spirit comes, and that Spirit pours out this divine love into the hearts of those who know God. And this love is their experience. He has put it in our hearts. Or as 1 John 4, 7 says, love comes from God. This is not something you can generate. This is not something that is the common love that families have for one another apart from Christ. This is not the love of the romantic world that any unbeliever can pursue. And many do. This is a unique kind of love, the kind of love that is seen with Christ hanging on the cross, and it is a love that God puts in the heart of the people who belong to him. A unique love. We must love. We're called to it. We can love if Jesus puts love in us. Now we ask the very straightforward and simple question, who are we to love? We all know the answer to that. All of our Sunday school students here, our children here, they could answer that question. Who are we to love? But let's let it go over us again. What we're doing is we're coming to a scene where we've been before, but we're saying, remind me. Remind me of this need and of this responsibility. First of all, we are to love God. We are commanded to love God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read these quickly, but Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 22. Deuteronomy chapter 6, in this second giving of the law, Moses writes the word of God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There is a command here in the Old Testament to love God. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, we see this in the words of Jesus. He draws the same idea. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus replies as he is asked about the greatest commandment in the law. He goes right back to Deuteronomy 6 and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We are commanded to love God. What is the evidence that I love God? Simple enough to be commanded to love God. Simple enough to say that I love God. What is the evidence that I love God? The Old Testament commands concerning love for God are never free-floating. They are always connected to obedience. Deuteronomy 30.16. Deuteronomy 30.16. For I command you today to love the Lord your God. Now notice he says to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. I don't think he's saying a number of different unrelated ideas here. This is all one command. To love the Lord your God is to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, his decrees, and his laws. And many times in the Old Testament, let's go to Joshua 22. I do have one more reference here. But you will see this. I looked at other references. This is a common connection in the Old Testament. When there is a command to love God, you will invariably find in the context these similar ideas of obeying, of serving God, or of following God, or something along these lines. Joshua chapter 22 and verse 5. Joshua summons a few of the tribes of Israel as they are going to depart to the Transjordan. But he says here, Joshua 22 and verse 5, But be very careful, he charges them, to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, to serve him. 
To love God is to serve Him. To love God is to obey Him. To love God is to keep His commandments. They're one and the same. In the New Testament, the writings of the Apostle John are particularly clear on this point. What is the evidence of genuine love for God? John chapter 14. We'll go to 1 John to the epistle, but first of all, the gospel. John chapter 14 and verse 15. How do we know that we love God? If you love me, you will obey what I command. Very simple. That's not confusing. That's what we love about John. He just says it straight. If you love me, you will obey what I command. You will do what I call you to do. Verse 21 of the same chapter. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Verse 23, same chapter. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. It's very clear, isn't it? 1 John chapter 2, let's go to the epistle. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 John 2 and verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him or abide in him must walk as Jesus did. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. It is obedience, again, that connects us to the love of God. Chapter 5 and verse 3 of 1 John. Chapter 5 and verse 3. This is love for God to obey his commands. 2 John 6. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. Very clear, isn't it? God's love for us, for us, his love for us is not free-floating. We cannot define God's love however we want to define it. He says, this is love. The Father sent the Son to die as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Likewise, we cannot define our love for God however we choose. God says, here is the definition of love for God. It is obedience to Him. It is following His commands. It is doing what He calls us to do. Anyone can run around and say, I love God with all of my heart. The Bible says this is how it's determined. Do you obey him? Do you do what he says to do? Now, hang on here, because we're going to look more carefully in the future at how our love for God differs from his love for us. Keep that thought in mind. We won't go there today. All we're establishing is that we are to love God. We are commanded to love God, and the evidence is obedience. Secondly, we are to love one another. The command to love one another Leviticus 19.18. Let's set our eyes on the Old Testament record here. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Have an Old Testament command very clearly here to love our neighbor. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 34 of Leviticus 19 Verse 34, the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus turns down the screws just a little further. We're to love our Israelites, the law says. We are to love the aliens among us. Jesus takes it a little bit further. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, I think the meaning is that that here, this is how God loves. He loves his enemies. 
So you love your enemies. John chapter 13, as the choir sung about this vital event, John chapter 13, 34, we have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In John 13, 34, what does he say after that washing? He says this, 13, 34 of John, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John 15, verse 12. John 15, verse 12. Jesus continues to teach his disciples, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Love one another. Think about this. What's going on here in these last moments that Jesus has with his disciples? In John 13, Jesus commands that his disciples love one another, and what does he do? He washes their feet to demonstrate what that looks like. And then he says, you do the same thing. And if you obey me, you will do the same thing. If you love me, you'll obey me, and you will wash feet. You will serve one another. In John 15, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another and to lay down their lives for one another. What does he then do? Lays down his life for them. He goes to the cross and he gives his life. He says, serve me. Just do what I do. Love me. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, verses 13 through 14. And if you are... Jotting any notes, you could put down here Romans 13, 8 through 10. A lengthier section will go to the shorter one. Galatians chapter 5, 13 to 14, or Romans 13, 8 through 10. Galatians 5, verse 13. You are my brothers, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in this single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The motivation to love others is what? 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. What is the motivation to love one another? Let me just read this one verse for sake of time. 1 John 3 and verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us divine love, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let's move quickly to the necessity of human love. If you'll plow with me a little bit further, this is clinching to our discussion here. We need to consider it. We've been here before, haven't we? We've been to this place. Many, many times we've been to this place. Love God with all of your heart. I've been there. I've seen that place. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've been there. I've seen that place. We know this. This is all by way of reminder and exhortation. We know that our capacity to love God comes from God. There's none of us who stands up and says, I can love on my own strength in my own way, or that the Christian love that God gives us is nothing different than the world's love. We know these things. We've been to this place before. But as we revisit this important place, On this journey of faith, we may do well to pause and consider just how high the stakes really are in this matter. They are very, very high. 
Think of that man who goes to the Grand Canyon and stands on the edge and walks away unimpressed. Now, if you drove him down there, you wouldn't be happy at all. I tell you, if you stand on the edge of God's love and you look into that love and you walk away unimpressed, there is nothing that awaits but damnation. You cannot look at that love and walk away. You can't say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm supposed to love God. I'm supposed to love others. I'm, I understand all that. I'm working on it. Hey, nobody's perfect. If we see the love of God for what it really is, it should bring us to our knees. So I would say this, two propositions here that I believe you will find are borne out in these passages of Scripture. First of all, if you do not love God, you are not God's child. If you do not love God, you are not God's child. I should say this, if you do not love, you are not God's child, generally. If you do not love, you're not God's child. First of all, God's children love God. John chapter 8, verse 42. God's children love God. And you will see in these passages how carefully the biblical text brings us to terms with this point. That God's people love him. Not some of them, not just what they're supposed to do, they love him. Notice how Jesus puts this in John chapter 8 and verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, he says to these enemies who are attacking him and denying his salvation and who he is, that he's from God, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. What did he say? If God were your father, you would love me. So their lack of love for Jesus indicates that God is not their father. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 3. Positively stated here in the epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says, 8.3, But the man who loves God is known by God. Let's go to 16.22. The man who loves God is known by God. 1 Corinthians 16.22, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. But Paul is saying, I know this isn't the, the overall point of these passages, but these phrases mean nothing if they don't mean this. One's love for God is the evidence of one's salvation. A lack of love for God is evidence of lostness. If someone doesn't love God, a curse be on him. James chapter 1 and verse 12. We're looking here at a number of apostles. We look at John's work, James' work, Paul's uh, work, the revelation given to them. And we look here at James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, probably the crown which is life, that is eternal life in heaven with God, this crown of life is given to those who love God. Chapter 2 and verse 5, James says, 
essentially the same thing. In 2.5, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? To love God is equated in James, in these two phrases, with salvation. To inherit the kingdom of God is to be one who loves God. We turn now to John, 1 John 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we can put that with James, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. The love of the Father is not in him. Love of the world cannot coexist with the love of God. Now that's not saying there's not temptation. I'll get to that in a moment. But let's let those passages settle in our mind. Jesus says to his enemies, you do not love because you do not know God. God's children love God. Secondly, God's children love others. Back to Matthew 5 and verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now let's take that a little further. We looked at that earlier. But notice what he says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. I don't know what else that means, but that God the Father loves evil people. And He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So if you're going to be like Him, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Any unbeliever can love their own family, their own friends in a certain respect. But that's all you are, if that's all the way that you love. But verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, which means love your enemies. That's unique kind of love. That's the kind of love God has. Everybody loves their friends and their family. Well, usually, (laughs) or you're supposed to. You know what I mean by that. It's there. But to love your enemies, that's divine. That's unique. That's from God. That's not normal. So love your enemies. Jesus says, if you love your enemies, it is evidence that you have the love of God in you because God loves his enemies. People that got up this morning, who last night, did everything conceivable to dishonor and hate God with their actions. And they get up this morning in a warm house and they will feed their stomachs, and they will go on and live this day, and God will let them live. He loves his enemies. Love your enemies. 1 John 4, verses 11 and 12. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Love for others is evidence that God lives in us. Verse 20 of the same chapter. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see the point there? We're not messing around here. God says, if there's not love, there's not life. 
Secondly, I have to hustle through this very quickly, but if you are God's child, you will continue in love. Now we could connect this a number of ways. There aren't a whole lot of very specific statements connecting this idea to love, but there are many that connect it to obedience. And what is the evidence of love for God? Obedience. So any place that we say that the believer will continue in obedience is a place that is saying a, continue, a believer will continue in love. 1 John 2, 5, and 6, since we're there, we'll just turn back here and use this. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. What, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If anyone obeys his word. We will continue in obedience. We will continue in faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The genuine believer will continue in faith. And this faith is our connection again to the love of God and our obedience to Him. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2, he speaks of the gospel in verse 1. By this gospel, verse 2, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. That is, if there is faith in the word that has been preached. There is a continuance in love that I think we can also demonstrate. John 15 and verse 9. John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. You see this interconnectedness to continuing faith, continuing obedience, continuing Love. First Timothy 2.15. We see this in a very practical application, but it hangs on this truth. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. There is here a command concerning the assembly and the teaching in the assembly and the place of men and women in the authority structure of a local church. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. In other words, he's giving them the realm of salvation. Not saying they need to bear a child. It's a difficult passage. We won't take time to go through it. But what he is saying is that there should be continuance in love, which evidences genuine salvation. Now, we have to stop and say, a believer can struggle with the love of God and the love of others, right? Remember Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4? John writes in Revelation to that church, at Ephesus, you have left your first love. You, have, you are struggling in your love for God and your love for one another. But what does he call them to do in the midst of that struggle? Repent. Repent and turn. That is the conclusion of it all. Now, I'm setting a lot up here. I know we visited this place, but I do want to stress this point as we close. We looked at divine love last week. It's important that we get rid of false images and that we go to the real place, what love really is in God's economy. But once having arrived, there is a need for response. God is love, and since God is love, since it is his very nature to love, everyone who is born of God enters his love and expresses his love. This self-giving interest that centers upon the deepest need of others, this divine love is not an option in our lives. It is our connection, our vital connection to the true God. Created in the image of God, saved by His grace, you must love. You must love God. You must love your friends and family. You must love those in your church. And you must love your enemies. 
This is not an option. It's a matter of life and death. If you do not love, you do not know God. And so the question before all of us here today is, do I love God? Do I love others? Maybe you sense this morning in your heart there is no love. And in fact, if I was really honest, yes, I have the kind of love that the rest of the world has, but I don't have this unique divine love that can love God with all my heart and that loves others by pouring my life out simply for their good and in their best interest and that communes with God and His love. If that love is not in your heart right now and that love has never been in your heart, then I take just the words of Jesus and say, it is because you do not know God. The wonderful thing about it is that you can, and you can today. You can come in his grace as his enemy and come before his feet and accept his love, receive him as your savior, and become a child of God, 1 John 1.12. You can enter that love. You, you don't need to bring anything to the table. You can't bring anything to the table. You have to come in simple faith and embrace this love because when Jesus hung on the cross, he hung there and died there for you. This was God's love to you. And if you will come to him and in faith embrace that love, he will save you and he'll put his love in your heart. I would call you to that today and there's nothing that stops you. Matter of fact, you must embrace that message. But if you do know that love, it's been put in your heart. You have that love for others. You have that love for your enemies. You have that love for God. And I think the question that may be wise to pose before us this morning as we close is, have you left your first love? Have you left off that love? Is it weak? Does it need to be revived? The answer that John gave in Revelation 2 was to repent. Realize that love is not an option. We don't stand seeing the vision of Christ dying, spin on our heel, humph and walk away. We must respond. If his love has been born in your heart, then we need to let that love flow toward one another and toward God. And by his grace, we'll spend time in the weeks ahead to begin to tear that apart, and to look into our own hearts, to find out what this love of God really looks like and how it gets stopped up and hindered in our personal walk. Let's bow for prayer.